Hi folks, welcome back to the Unsung Podcast and a collector's edition, completely mark-free Unsung Podcast. Just like last week, uh, we're returning to the conversation between myself and Vicky about Diamanda Galas, a totally batshit but brilliant vocalist and Vicky's choice of an album, The Singer. We're going to have a quick look through some of her records. Go back and listen to last week. You can hear a bit about the context of the vocal techniques she does, some of her influences, some of the people she's influenced. But yeah, strap yourself in. There's going to be a lot of funny noises (laughs) and a lot of confusion in this one. Yeah, so well, we take a little whistle stop tour of yeah, some of our records. Just some, yeah. We can't possibly be exhaustive. So our first release was 1982 and it was The Litanies of Satan. <laughs> Straight off the bat, we were talking about themes and obviously the AIDS theme is a big part of our career. Mm. The church, Satan, damnation, hell, the infernal, it's there a lot. And Mm -hmm. as is a kind of playful mirroring of it from the other side, uh, this was an early sojourn into into old Nick's territory. Uh, A bold statement, it's two huge tracks, Mm -hmm. two enormous songs, and there's just loads of fire and brimstone and Mm -hmm. torture referenced in it. I mean, for her first, this is her first, like her debut. I think it's incredible. I really do. I really, I really like it. The first compositions and adaptation to music of a poem by Charles Baudelaire called Les Fleurs du Mal. Okay. Um, and it's just her. I think she does a lot of like really clear kind of intonation with her words, and you really hear it in that. And as she's singing in French and that as well, it's yeah, it's worth worth checking out. Uh, Nineteen eighty four was that the self titled one? Yep. I don't know much about this one. What do you make of it? So this is a Greek language piece that's dedicated to political prisoners who were either murdered or executed during the Greek military regimes. Um, that's, like I say, a lot of our work is about human tragedy, genocide, stuff like that, suffering, you know. What's really interesting, I think, is that I, I did the usual thing of looking up some lists where you get kind of fan lists and voted lists, and the results varied, but they almost always seem to alternate between one of these two records being the best. Really? And the other being the second best. Yeah, I mean, so best ever was the self-titled, then Litany's uh, Rate Your Music was the opposite way around. It was after that that you started to get the variation in her catalogue. That's interesting. Um, 1986, Saint of the Pit. I actually think it's quite an effective record. Well, this this is where she starts her her, her Mask of the Red Death trilogy. So yeah. that she, so she releases two from the trilogy in that year. 
And that's the year she lost her brother as well. I really like both of those. Um, yeah, that's right, her brother died. Deliver yeah. Me on that is a great showcase of her influences and of her vocal range. Um, the fourth track in it, Artemis, I think, is quite popular with fans. I'm not too big in it, it's a bit loungy. But the fifth track in that one, Cri d'Aveugle. Cri d'Aveugle, I think that's my favourite one. I Blind think that's Man's Cry. Fucking hell. Amazing. The vocal chokes and hacks at two and a half minutes in it are mental. About the, the, the yep. insane sounds that are mm-hmm. involved in it. That's aye, that's when it starts to there's bits that sound like bats and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. But I guess considering the subject matter and terminal illness and watching people die, there's there's a poignancy to it in that sense. So you had the Divine Punishment and Saint of the Pit in nineteen eighty six and then in eighty eight you've got You Must Be Certain of the Devil. I actually think that might be my favourite out of the third the three of them. That's between, a really interesting one. Between that and Saint of the Pit, maybe. Yeah, well, that's but you, you must be certain the devil's got double barrel prayer on it. The it's second one, which so is so good. Like an almost an industrial goth track with like an actual structure and some really interesting electronics. I mean, some of the electronics sounds are a wee bit naff, but that you know that wasn't her forte. But it's it's such a departure. Terrifying vocal effects. It's it's so good. That one that let's not chat about despair. That's on that is amazing. Um, she affects this kind of like evangelical southern accent but it's so over the top like it's scornful and obviously quite contemptuous and mm-hmm. the lyrics are all just about people just check like we've spoke about before like people just checking out of reality of AIDS their inaction their total complacency towards like gay people dying and uh, there's a line about how a victim a dead homosexual victim's mother continues to live in the fear of the shame about it and it's, there's just something so irritatingly banal about about that you know um, about how people pray to God and reassure themselves that they're decent people and all of that kind of stuff but there's all of this kind of like just man-made horror around about them um, it's pretty good a really compelling record that she brought out in 91 I think it's Plague Mass It's a, it's a big step in mm-hmm. her career anyway It's one that appeared at number three In some of those lists A genuinely scary record if you allow it to be You know, I've got this personal Hatred, right When you go to horror movies Of people that laugh in films that are trying to be earnest I'm not talking about goofy horror movies But I'm talking about Hereditary was a good example right, Of a genuinely disturbing horror film Where especially men Who are actually You can tell that they're feeling a bit scared mm-hmm. And so their their way to counter their 
their fear is to mock, is to like to, to, to laugh out loud and try and demonstrate bravado. I fucking hate that. And the we, thing, but we went to see Mandy at the GFT. Everybody was laughing at the the bit where Nicholas Cage had a breakdown. I was like nearly greeting. Aye, I know. <laughs> and and that's the thing. See people that choose to deal with their emotions via that stupid laugh emoji thing rather mm-hmm. than actually experience the emotion that the, the filmmaker or the artist is trying to elicit in you mm-hmm. like stop putting your own safe emotion there, L- allow yourself to go with it and I think this album suffers from that that people can listen to it and if they're not willing to confront some of the kind of horrific feelings that she's trying to bring out, mm-hmm. then you just sort of laugh at how weird and abstract it is, do you know what I mean it's you need to mentally be committed to, to letting it do it yeah, but at the same time, I think, see, when things are exceptionally, like, really, really intense, part of your emotional reaction to that can be laughter. And I'm not saying because you find it funny, but because that's because the physical reaction that your body has, like, when something is so intense, it can be, like, I've been in a situation in the cinema fairly recently, actually, where I was watching something quite intense, and I was hitting the giggles. But it was just because it was so so much do you know and I think sometimes as well if what your body reacts like is laughter then that has to be part of it as well I know what you're saying but I also think there is sometimes you laugh when you don't necessarily find things funny I would agree well nervous laughter I would agree with that I think there's also that thing where some people choose to not allow themselves to look vulnerable by supplanting it with something else Mm. Um, this record's got some really really powerful points in it I think uh, the second track this is the law of the Mm. plague about six minutes in that Mm -hmm. is it's her her most maniacal it's Mm -hmm. absolutely fucking mental I think this is her magnum opus. She spent ages, years writing it. She performed it at a cathedral in New York in 1990 where she doused herself naked with blood. Did she get arrested um, for that? She got arrested the year before it because she was involved in a controversial demonstration called Stop the Church at St. Patrick's Cathedral That's in New right. York City. That was one of these things where some gay people criticised that as well because it was it happened during a mass like they went into a cathedral during a mass and they saw that as antithetical to gay people's beliefs in protecting privacy if you know what I mean like so okay. so there was lots of different takes on that but lots of people were arrested for that and she was one of them I guess activism should be polarising mm, even if absolutely. it sometimes polarises the audience that you're trying to reach out mm-hmm. to or on behalf of um, another really interesting album worthy of note which you mentioned earlier on was The Sporting Life from 1994 with John Paul Jones This really is not my favourite album of hers No No um, it didn't I do. Go- I don't. I don't hate it. I don't love it at all. It I don't think it's her best. Didn't show up on too many of the lists, particularly high. Another one that had done was the Divine Punishment, but this one, I actually really liked this. Mm. I, I found this it's funny. It, it's got a good sense of fun. It's mm-hmm. got a healthy sense of humility on her part, yeah. given how intense some of what she does is. But I can never forgive. Just forget. Now it will take me ten long years. 
the, the, you know, even just the cover art of her in the bonnet, the That's car, hilarious. With him in the car, it, it shows like a kind of a, a good time. Um, no, I do, I do like it. Um, I think I, I like the, the the song Tony on it. Mm-hmm. I really like that one. think it's funny that one of the songs is apparently about the, the, the song the, the sport and life is reputably about her and a gang of women hunting down and killing Snoop Doggy Dog. It's <laughs> a fucking brilliant theme <laughs> for a song. <laughs> and you know I think she's like deliberately perverted with a homicidal misandry you know <laughs> like even just like you're saying on the cover of that she's just, got the knife. Just run that one more time <laughs> about her and a gang of women hunting down <laughs> Snoop and killing Snoop Doggy Dog. There's a bit in an interview where she talks about it, and she's like, "Fuck him," or like, you know, I think she she hated gangster rap. Yeah, like, and, yeah. and she's like, "Well, I'm just going to turn the tables on you guys." Do you know what I mean? So, it's a big Celtic fan, Vicky. How do you feel about that? I I think that Snoop Doggy Dog, I could do with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, tracks on that. Do you take this man? I think has a real Millie Jackson quality to it. <laughs> This is interesting that you say that. She sounds like Tina Turner at times, like in full blown. There's bits where I'm like, ah, that is Tina Turner. Yeah. You know? um, it's half sung, barked, it's got a monologue to it. Um, and you know what? With that backing band, it sits musically somewhere between Led Zeppelin and Girls Against Boys. Mm. It's got a 90s alternative feel with the bass guitar being so prominent, obviously, because it's John Paul Jones. Mm-hmm. But it's much more modern than his work with Led Zeppelin. It's got that 90s alternative noise rock feel. Um, dark end of the street as well. I think that's where she sounds like Tina Turner. But I, yeah, that's got a kind of corny conventionality mm-hmm. that I think belies a lot of the other I stuff that, that she song. does. But, um, yeah. I think another one that kind of stood out to me was Scotusemi. Yeah, the, the first track on the album, I. Yeah, yeah that, that cool Arabian intro. It's almost mm-hmm. like post rock, but then it goes into this like weird nineties noise funk. Um, we we mentioned earlier on nineteen eighty six. She did a thing called Shrey X, which I think is meant to be ten, but Shrieks as mm-hmm. well. I guess is a, I think it's, it's Shrieks. Shrieks. Yeah. Shrieks. That fucking record, entirely vocal. The fucking third track on that, M Dis I, is fucking horrendously brutal. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the first times where you really need to talk about art versus pleasure and definitions of music. This is definitely pushing boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's so caustic. Can this album ever be pleasant to listen to? You know, we are... As a creature, as a species, genetically programmed to respond to some frequencies and some noises, you know, babies crying, human suffering, pain, proper wails, like how much can you enjoy something that 
as a creature, you're you're literally fundamentally programmed to react adversely mm-hmm. to it. That is a really interesting test of the boundaries. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about weird mathematical timings or heavy guitar sounds. You're talking like instinctive, primordial yeah. fucking noises. She said that um, Shree means shriek in German and she explained that she thinks the word shriek in English has a pedestrian connotation, whereas in the German it connotes a really deeply located, and she called it an intravenal sound. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's what like you're describing. It's it is something very like primal. Oh fuck! It, it absolutely is. Um, Nineteen ninety eight. There's a record called Malediction and Prayer. That's incredible. Uh, like that's that. a live record. That has a track in it called Iron Lady, which I know is quite significant. Well, she um, dedicated it. She dedicated live versions of it to um, Aileen Wernos, you know the yeah. the the female serial killer. Monster. Aye, that the, the film Monster with Charlie Theron's about. <laughs> she, um, she she was her hero. She said that she was her hero. Yeah, <laughs> in an interview that I read, Diamanda Galas said that she judged herself very harshly because she didn't kill any of the men who per- perpetrated violence on her, and she said that Eileen Wornos was her hero because she did kill hers. It's fucking intense, eh? Because I mean, when when she was yeah. when she was a prostitute, she was also working with a lot of trans people at the time as well mm-hmm. and saw a lot of violence mm-hmm. on the streets. I mean, which I'm sure it isn't uncommon, especially not in the likes of New York City at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a track in that called My World Is Empty Without You. Oh my God, that is amazing. That is a fucking amazing... That was the, Supreme, that was the Supremes that sang that? Was it? My world is empty Without you, babe Her version her is version. so much more yeah. gripping. It's so good. That drop into the chorus is fucking stunning. And that, yeah. I fell in love for me to carry on. Another record that I think deserves a mention is La Serpenta Canta. Mm-hmm. Life performance album are mainly covers again, a bit like the one we're doing. Oh, that's the one that's got the kind of death wheel cover of I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry on. <laughs> I yeah. think William's song. Um, yeah, very, really very good. bluesy, utilises a yep. piano, um, but it has an accessibility. There's there's a track on it, uh, track three, Ain't No Grave Can Hold My Body Down. It's a really old school, traditional blues gospel tune. Mm-hmm. It'll feel, I think, like mercifully familiar terrain for people that are struggling with the glass experience overall because it's quite intense. The track is still prone to like these little flights, but overall it's very relatable and really beautifully done. Yeah, um, yeah there's, there's, there's past compositions with Ornette Coleman and others on here as well. 
Did you listen to any of the newer stuff? I've listened up to Guilty, Guilty, Guilty. Well, see, Guilty, Guilty, Guilty is another live performance one with a piano. The piano on this one, though, is at times just outright violent, mm-hmm. such as really early on in the track, Eight Men and Four Women. The, the piano is thunderous. Also, the track on that long black veil is this really brooding sexual mm-hmm. thing. I thought that was a really powerful mm-hmm. tune. I spoke not a word, within my life, I had been Pretty amazing. And one of those pieces that reminds you just how fucking good she actually is as a musician when she isn't, you know, mm-hmm. scaring the shit out of your neighbours. Um, and then, yeah, the Divine Punishment from 2021. And as I said, that made it onto the third place on some of those lists. Um, again, right back to the start of her career, two long tracks. Um, They're ma- remasters. Yeah. This, but partly, part of the reason why I didn't, I, I had a wee bit of a blip with Diamanda Galas was because when I got in here, I was still buying CDs. But then she, her, she had a big problem with her record company because she was on Mute Records, who, unbeknownst to her, sold her back catalogue to EMI, and then she couldn't get rights to her records and they weren't on streaming services or anything mm. like that and you know it, was, it took her years and years and years to get them back so they've only really been available on stream, streaming services since like 2019 so some of this for some of her stuff like Clas- Serpenta Canta Guilty 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 and I don't know them as much mm. um, um, this, I mean this one is this one's extreme it probably conforms to a lot of the kind of mad ideas that I'm sure a lot of people hold about her in the first place mm-hmm. uh, the first of the two tracks Panopticon uh, is this weird electronic drone with explosions of vocal lunacy It plays around with pitch, uh, it plays around with time, and it plays around with wave modulation. It's just really fucking eccentric. Uh, If you want to hear Diamanda Galas push her own boundaries, then it's definitely one. Yeah, she's actually got an album coming out this year, I believe, coming out this month. Well. Called Broken Gargoyles. Be interesting to see where she goes with that. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, But will we talk about the album itself? Yes. The singer. Okay, so the singer from 1992. What are your impressions of this then? Just my overall impressions. Mm-hmm. It was more accessible than I expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess, you know, doing covers, even though she takes some of those covers in some pretty interesting directions, mm-hmm. it's always going to ground you a wee bit. It's certainly nothing like the Sheree stuff. No. Quite structured. And you get to kind of... It's interesting to hear something that you're already familiar with to yeah. some extent through the lens of someone else because it gives you a different measure of them as a person. Because mm-hmm. there's some commonality there. You're like, oh, we both like this song. Mm-hmm. This is what she wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have done that. But it gives you some insight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's tracks on here that I already knew. Of course. So it's just 
it's a lot of blues standards and spirituals mm. that people will be really will be familiar with. Yeah, but when you see how she treats them, it gives a wee added dimension to her personality and her musical taste. They're overtly political as well. You know, it, it's within the context of her overt politicism overall as well. I think yeah. you know overt protests of the handling of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I mean, Diamanda Galas largely does protest music of sorts, doesn't she? Well, that, that's the thing about her that I think is really refreshing. That she doesn't have a lot of that PR bullshit which you get with modern artists. Um, and she nails her colours to the mast or whatever that phrase is. I never get mm. that phrase right. You don't get that a lot because she's not... I remember when she, she was talking in an interview about Rihanna and you, you can't really compare the Amanda Glass and Rihanna, right? But in terms of how she presents herself, you can. She was saying that people like Rihanna, Beyonce and modern pop stars, if you like, work in a, in a cultural chart where they try and anticipate what's going to be cool or lucrative or whatever tomorrow and then they go with that. Whereas she's just not interested mm. in that. And she's genuinely not. Like She says some really mental things. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the curmudgeonly side to her really facilitates that. The fact that she can afford to be political because she doesn't give a fuck if she pisses people She really people doesn't. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that's really we're, we're losing a lot of that actually absolutely and that's the punk side of her uh-huh. as well that's, exactly that's that is the punk, punk side yeah. of her sure um the first track in this my love will never die between the piano and the vocal is a big part of this version of it mm-hmm. um, it, it never really flows the piano kind of like skips about and reacts to the singing and the singing reacts to the piano quite a lot uh, she has a super bold baritone although it's mm-hmm. peppered with a few falsettos yeah. but everything about this song stays quite low the piano stays quite low too in the register mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a really interesting sombre mature take She just she does some interesting things with her voice, and it might just be like one word. So there's a bit where she says, "These flowers grow." It's just the the line, "These flowers grow," and the word "flowers" is like pushed out, like she's choking something up. Like mm. it's just that one word that sounds like she's like coughed it up. And and as you say, you've got all those wee like pleases that are like wee falsettos, but the mm. rest of it's quite quite abrasive. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, oh, it's good. It's good. It's a good start. Reap what you saw, the second track. That's one of my favourites on this. Not album. in fact written by an old black man sitting on a porch, no, though. Written two, by two m- Yeah, Mike Bloomfield and Nick Gravenites, I think mm-hmm. he is. He'd played with Janis Joplin, Bloomfield was on Highway 61 revisited by Bob Dylan. Her piano has a lot of little playful flurries in this and at times the, there was one point in particular where the vocal sounded like she was about to do Lulu's Make Me Wanna Shout. <laughs> yeah, which is good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
I'm I'm okay with that track. I, th- I think it's all right. You say no. it's one of your favourites. Ah, uh, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, I much prefer the one that comes after it. Uh, Where you there when they crucify my, my lord? Dark as fuck. So um, dark. It's funny how this is so gospel, and so many of her other records were so obsessed with like the inferno. You know, in fact, I mean, she not all added to a list as well of prescribed satanic acts at one point. But, uh, it was like some Christian TV corporation of Christian TV evangelicals or whatever in America in the nineties had a list, like an official list of people that they wanted kept off the TV. Ozzy Osbourne, unsurprisingly, and she get she get put on it. Good as well. job, folks. I mean, yeah. it guaranteed their kids immediately went out and bought her because <laughs> that's great publicity if you get on a list like that, isn't it? Um, totally. So this was written by a guy called Roy Acuff, who was the quote king of country music. He was apparently a guy that helped country music transition from being sort of hoedowns mm. and square dances over into being much more solo delivery, Aye. which helped it kind of conquer the world to some extent. I think this is probably his arrangement, but it's like an, an old um, African-American spiritual as well. Yeah. And if you look at any of the other versions of it that are on the internet, like Johnny Cash, Harry Belafonte, or that guy, Roy Acuff, is that his name? Acuff, I think. Acuff. 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 Um, they're nothing like this. Their mournful sounds are quite flat and and quite divine. Hers is very like as I've said before. It's three D. It's very human. Mm-hmm. She she does have a bit of a scream on it, um, but then she's got be quiet bits as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's get serious. We're a track that we've oh actually God. discussed on this show before. Oh, have you? Gloomy Sunday. We, it came up in a nexus. Did it? Uh, because incredible. it is the the Hungarian suicide song. Is it not something like more people have apparently killed themselves to this song or some lots yeah, or something so, like that? Yeah. yeah, so it was made famous by Billie Holiday. Um, yeah. But uh, we discussed it in the context of it was originally written by a guy called Rezo Ceres. Mm-hmm. Um, it was banned by the BBC. Uh, until 2002 because it was considered detrimental to wartime morale. Sunday is gloomy, my hours are numberless. Here is the shadows I live with are numberless. As to why wartime morale extended up to 2002, I don't know. But um, Rezo Ceres, the, the composer, killed himself 35 years after writing it. But, you know, the, the, the urban legend is that loads of people have committed suicide to this song. If you're listening to this song, there's maybe a higher chance that you're depressed. That may explain part of the correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's fucking spectacular. There's a lot it's of, amazing. I think there's a lot of Tom Waits in her delivery uh, on this one. Um, that kind of approach uh, but yeah it's just heartbreaking I can see what you mean actually uh huh she 
holds back a wee bit more on this one I think than she does mm-hmm. in her other songs and there's just a couple of wee bits where she just lets out like a wee burst mm-hmm. and it's it's really it's beautiful mm-hmm. if you can say that about a suicide song it's yeah it's really sad as well um, Bam and Gilead slash Swing Low Sweet Chariot the, fi- uh, the fifth track in this Much more freeform, pretty remarkable song. Um, mm. About two minutes forty, I think it is, when it suddenly explodes after this really haunting intro. I'm so much um, you know, this track, even though it has no drums or heavy guitars and stuff. Is very reminiscent of parts of Phantomas, the, the band yeah. that Mike Patton's part yeah. of. I mean, see the England rugby team. Mm-hmm. I think they've done a good job of warding me off sweet, Swing Low Sweet Chariot forever. But, and honestly, when I see that song, something just like deep inside me just doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Yes. It's weird. It's like Simply the Best. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I love Simply the Best. But, um, I like about what she's done with this because I do, I think this is where you see her and we haven't really spoken too much about how she is really, I've mentioned that she's irreverent but how she does that in her songs and like sometimes she's really like right out there on on the sporting life she definitely does and I think she's been quite irreverent with this and that Swing Low Sweet Chariot reminds the audience of the glory that awaits in heaven right, so when Christians believe that when they die, they'll transcend the rapture, the earthly world of suffering, and come to rest in heaven or whatever, right? And part of her criticism of Christianity is that it puts that that on people and causes them to be apathetic about what's here yeah. and now. And she almost like wheezes out the words of of this song, like she, it's like a perceptible air of just like. Disease it's, and death. It's very derisory, isn't it? And it's it's it is. And it's 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 scathing, and and I, I appreciate what she's done with that, and yeah. I think she does have that sense of humour of over over egging the pudding when it comes to stuff like that. How fucking good would it be if at the next Six Nations English rugby team goes up and sings <laughs> it like that? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the camera panning across them. Oh my god! It'd <laughs> be fucking brilliant if the whole stadium did it as well. I would, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't even vote for independence if they did that. Oh my goodness, uh-huh. <laughs> um, that is hilarious. Track six, Insane Asylum, a Willie Dixon tune. a pure jaunty opening which is mm. probably required after the, the, the track prior um, a welcome reprieve uh, 
bluesy and soulful it's not a total head fuck comparatively speaking mm-hmm. so it kind of stands out in that respect I think even in Willie Dixon despite the theme I might add the, uh, the, exactly um, the originally this was Willie Dixon and Coco Taylor that sang it and the two of them have got quite um, quite rocking voices like you know not full on screaming but a bit you know and I think yeah. that there's there's a lot of those old timey kind of like blues artists that she takes a lot from them with her the screaming. I mean, the obvious ones the one we're going to talk about in a minute, but also Coco Taylor definitely, Big Mama Thornton and people like that have got that kind of throaty guttural kind of thing mm-hmm. that she does. Uh, track seven, I put a spell on you. Well, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's her demented harpy version yeah I was going to say well, it's a tune that so many other artists do slow and she actually attacks it and really plays with like lyrical repetition yeah. she also delays that hooky payoff a lot you know she, you're mm. waiting for her to do it and she just keeps teasing it but the speed of it surprised me I thought she would have mm. gone for like a, an almost like a funereal slow pace but not at all no it's demented and again she's doing that thing of taking the piss where she's the bits where she's saying I love you she's doing it in this be like I love you you, I love your voice. Like yeah. I, I appreciate that. It's loose and jazzy. Uh, mm-hmm. She goes fucking taunt over the vocal in the middle, and then right at the very end as well. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! I love this next one. Let My People Go, track eight. Uh, her adaptation of a really pretty fucking old song. Yeah. Um, it's really interestingly played um, has these oh. big kind of chord strikes that feel almost quite classical like it shows that classical training in the ear the piano is soaked in a really beautiful reverb as well mm. we didn't actually mention that but one of the things about Gloomy Sunday on this is just how beautifully produced mm. it is like the reverb is gorgeous mm-hmm. um, yeah this is a really dense, heavy, deep delivery a little bit similar to track one where it doesn't go above a certain register Mm -hmm. and there's so much dynamism in in the the piano play this, I think this is tied with Gloomy Sunday Sunday for my favourite on the record to be honest comes to a traditional song called Go Down Moses but the lyrics are hers and when she plays it live she dedicates it to her friend Carol Valentino who she calls her gay husband mm-hmm. um, I think he died maybe in the 90s as well of AIDS um, it's clearly about people that she's lost and about her own thoughts of death and mortality and it's this kind of bargaining conversation with Jesus about will I be saved what's happening um, there's just death everywhere all around about me and that, that line that keeps coming up which is like the eight legs of the devil are crawling up my spine I think that actual lyric or that part of the song 
that was probably what made me fall in love with this album. What a fucking lyric it, it is. It, it, it's yeah. amazing. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely, it's definitely like the high point of this album. It, for, for all it's dark and it's grim and it's really terrifying, it's, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Track 9, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. Different feel to it. it. It reminds me more of the sporting life, actually. Okay, uh, but it's played with organ and not it's piano. It's got an organ. Mm-hmm. It's also got this kind of CB radio production of the vocal. One Aye. of the things that really struck me about this tune that I think is actually brilliant is that all the way through there's a single organ note that's played like a little heartbeat, and that that is almost a percussive mm-hmm. uh, feature in the song. Mm-hmm. It's very gentle as well. It's so delicate. Um, I think that was excellent. Um, and the other organ sort of dances over it, sparring with the vocal it's a really interestingly recorded song performed produced i'm not not a huge fan of the melody really mm-hmm. but i love the way it's been delivered yeah um and then track 10 judgment day an, an authentic glass howling oh around, definitely around, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Tempered but feral, kind of exactly what you might expect from her. Um, it's really nicely written. Though. It's got this kind of uh, drony flange quality to the the piano that shifts the chords underneath the voice. Uh, I used that word funereal. I think that one's quite funereal, quite haunting. Um, it sounds like it's getting howled at you down in a valley, like somebody up in the rocks is singing, and you're mm-hmm. down there, you know, and you feel mm-hmm. quite threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel quite exposed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. again, as you said with the last one, it's it's kind of horrifying, but it's mm-hmm. also excellent. You yeah, know. I agree. It, mm-hmm. it straddles that. It's, I mean, she's so interesting. It's a, it's a really good record in her catalogue. I. I don't know how sincerely I can say that I know such a big catalogue well enough to say this is anything like a favourite, but I think this is a really excellent example of what she's done. Yes. There are examples that are far more out there, Definitely. but personally, whilst I appreciate the novelty and the sentiment and often the technicality of them, I don't find them musically rewarding. This one has a bit of both, mm-hmm. and I really like that about it. Um, I liked Lissa Serpenta as well. Mm. Thought that was really good. A Serpenta Canta. Uh-huh. Um, and there are bits and bobs from many of the others that really jump out at me. I think the best thing I can suggest is that we put a nice, a nice, very commas, playlist together yeah. for, for listeners of the show. And I, I have no objections to this choice. I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think when it comes to what I enjoy most about her stuff, it probably is the three albums that she did for the um, the Mask of the Red Death trilogy, but I feel like you can't really separate them. And then there's so many of her other albums that I really love and enjoy, but I think that this one, I think, is a good starting point, actually, yeah. to, to her, if you've never listened to her before. And um, for all it's a compilation of covers, it's composed. It's consistent. It, uh-huh. yeah, aye, aye. It's not just a, a ramshackle hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. No, it's really good and I would agree with that. Thank you. So Selenexus Selenexus
complicated series of connections between different things. Right, Cestle Nexus. <laughs> this is a good choice this week, actually, and I think it was another one of those ones where it, it could be a low key flex. It comes from Corey Robinson. Uh, Corey has the privileged position of also being an Analog Record Club member. Uh, Corey, cool. kudos to you for this because this gives us a chance to talk about a f- another fascinating it was very woman. Interesting. Yeah, I'll give you a quick intro. So the person that came out of the pot was Fulan Devi. I didn't actually know who Fulan Devi was, so there are some YouTube videos and podcasts that go into her story in far greater detail. They're definitely worth a watch. There's also a film inspired by her life, although I think it meets with some criticism. Um, Fulan Devi, the bandit queen, is an Indian folk hero of sorts uh, from modern times. Born to a poor family, married to a horrible old bastard at a young age who abused her. She left, was jailed, was later sent back to him by her family, and by the age of 16 she'd left him again and become a social outcast due to the stigma. 1979 she fell in with a group of what they called decoits or bandits. Uh, whilst the details are unclear, the rumour is that she was kidnapped. The leader of the group abused and tried to rape her, but in a in a totally swashbuckling moment he was stopped and then killed by his second in command Vikram Mala who then assumed leadership of the gang and also began a relationship with Fulan Uh, the gang soon raided the village of that old abusive husband whom she personally dragged from his house and stabbed in the street instructing onlookers never to marry children Uh, that guy did survive but he lived as a recluse apparently from then on a disharmony within that gang eventually led to a power struggle and the death of Vikram, our, our romantic partner at the time, uh, at which point Fulan was detained in a village where she was abused and raped until finally being helped to escape by a couple of allies from her old ethnic group. Um, she went on to form her own gang and later returned to the village where she'd been held for revenge. Unable to find her abuser, she instead had 22 local men killed, which understandably caused a national scandal in India. Um, Yet her grown popularity and reputation as a bit of a Robin Hood figure protected her somewhat. After many years as an outlaw, she eventually surrendered along with some of her fellow rebels in 1983 and was jailed, but after political intervention was controversially released in 94 by the government of Muliam Singh Yadav. In prison, by the way, she'd had a hysterectomy officially due to ovarian cysts, but it's hotly debated as a forced procedure, not unheard of as a punitive measure against women in the Indian penal system. Mm-hmm. That rumour uh, was given some added credence by some off-colour comments from the surgeon that, that performed it. Um, Phil and Debbie's Wikipedia page, for the record, is a fucking war zone. You, you can really see the competing narratives making their own updates and corrections as you read it. You know, people on one side of the argument or the other because mm-hmm. she's a polarising figure, especially in India. So that's the women had to do that recap. That is stuff you should know. Is <laughs> yeah, version of Phil and Devi. Thanks for bringing it to our attention, Corey. We'll hear a wee bit more about her shortly. Uh, but Vicky, this mm-hmm. was your choice, so you get to go first. Okay. I mean, there's there's so much. I think that so the two people have got in common revenge. Them- thematically, rape, <laughs> revenge, that outlaw status, yeah. abrasively outspoken or whatever. But in terms of actual people, right? Okay. So. In 1987, Diamanda Glass contributed vocals to the soundtrack of a Derek Jarman film called The Last of England. Jarman was a leading campaigner against Clause 28, which for anybody outside the UK was a legal clause that sought to ban the promotion of homosexuality in schools. It wasn't actually repealed in Scotland. It was 2000. It was repealed in England. It was a couple of years after that. 
he also worked to raise awareness of AIDS and he himself was diagnosed with HIV in 1986 loads of other that's going to be dark as fuck isn't it yeah I, well there's lots of other people doing the voices right so you've got Ewan, Ewan McGregor's doing the voice of Jiminy Cricket you've got David Bradley who was the who was Walter Frey off of uh, Game of Thrones okay he's doing Geppetto I don't see him as a Geppetto but he did he did play Ricky Gervais's dad in that um, after life Oh, that's right. No, I think uh, he's, he's an okay Geppetto. Mm-hmm, think so? Yeah. Right. Uh, and you've got Kate Blanchett as Sprezzatura the Monkey. Now, Kate Blanchett has been nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning Best Supporting Actress for The Aviator and Best Actress for Blue Jasmine. Um, two of her nominations for Best Actress were for her performance in the role of Elizabeth I in the films Elizabeth and its sequel Elizabeth the Golden Age, both directed by Indian filmmaker Shekhar Kapoor. In 1994, Kapoor directed the Indian Hindi language biographical action adventure film Bandit Queen, which base, was based on the book India's Bandit Queen, the true story of Fulandevi by the Indian author Malasen, which charted the life of Fulandevi up to her surrender to authorities two years after the Bemai massacre. Yep. As I say, it's a film that some folk have mixed feelings about, but yeah, because she didn't want it originally released because she thought it was like profiteering off of her rape story. Mm-hmm. But then once they gave her forty grand, she was like, <laughs> "I'm cool with it. I'm yeah, profiteering." Yeah, I. Yeah, if anybody's entitled exactly. to it, she is. So. Diamanda Galas is featured in the book Feminist Endings, Music, Gender and Sexuality by the musicologist Susan McClary in that she discusses uh, Diamanda Galas uh, challenging narrow, quote, roles of women in opera. Um, Mm -hmm. Susan McClary in that same book also featured in a hilarious article from a website called A Voice for Men, hopefully uh, the irony was obvious there mm-hmm. um, That website's something of a private eye for incels And dads with restraining orders Oh when the will men have a voice? <laughs> a voice for <laughs> men finally uh, The headline on the article that mentions Susan McClary Women bishops condemn pipe organ as instrument of toxic masculinity On International Women's Day a satirical thing, you know, I guess it's an attempt at being the onion. Uh, right. It introduces the article trying to satirise the phallic nature of pipe organs mm. and the masculine nature of performance of certain pieces. It's just as funny as I'm sure it sounds. Mm. Um, one can only assume the writer's both celebrated as a Swiftian level satirist and doesn't see his kids. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So that site, A Voice for Men, is the homepage of a movement started and overseen by a particularly unpleasant guy called Paul Elam. He heads mm. a for-profit, of course. For Elam profit. is male backwards. Oh, fuck. Something's no adding up. <laughs> Maybe this is all staged. <laughs> uh, he heads a for-profit, you know, and all these guys that are the heads of these fucking awful things seem to work for profit. Look at Alex Jones. Um, yeah. Company and think tank, whose central fixation is the belittle and emasculation of the modern male, thanks to apparently rampant feminist movement, drunken power and estrogen. Are you? <laughs> 
Let's speak up. A bit, aye. A wee bit, aye. Asked the Amanda Glass. <laughs> you swaggered in here the night, yeah. Drunk on estrogen, that's so, bizarre. So, yeah, a voice for men. You can visit their red pill shop on the website, presumably to pick up an Elliot Roger tote bag, <laughs> the, new, the new R. Kelly record or something. Oh. Uh, honestly, it's called the red pill shop. Does it have Elliot Roger tote bags? No, that was just my suggestion, but oh, I think they would sell pretty well, judging yeah, by their audience. Dark. Um, in 2018, they finally earned their badge being classified as a male supremacist hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Centre. That was likely due in no small part to things like, in early 2011, a voice for men created the website Register Her, a wiki page which initially listed the names, addresses and other personal information of women convicted of murdering or raping men, but then expanded mm. to include women supposedly guilty of false rape accusations or, quote, anti-male bigotry. The page also released the personal information of women who protested against the men's rights movement, MRM, mocked it online or generally espoused feminist ideas and support. You could, you could be on there, Vicky. <laughs> um, Paul Elam, male backwards, publicly declared that they would no longer be quote any place to hide on the internet for lying bitches hmm. what you got to do now oh, I have to stay off the internet <laughs> oh no <laughs> start your own internet <laughs> just do what he does www but do it backwards um, now a similarly minded Indian entrepreneur and frequent masturbator is a guy called Anil Kumar co-founder of SIF S-I-F-F the Save Indian Families Foundation mm-hmm. an Indian NGO and advocacy group unifying the efforts of a, a myriad of men's rights groups in India and pro-family groups uh, ostensibly they claim to be fighting dowry harassment Dowries, by the way, are, are payments made by brides to their new husband or husband's families. It's a historical practice still popular in India, but has a number of adverse noted side effects, including preferential abortions, since male children can bring families money versus costing them money. Amnesty International also asserts that it perpetuates child marriage, and furthermore, it is widely considered to contribute to high levels of violence against women, including physical assault, acid attacks, and even murder when women are unable to pay the high fee. SIF claims that these supposed crimes are a myth and that in fact the dowry system is abused and exploited by many women somehow to their financial benefit ultimately leading to men the oppressed men of India being punished for violence and denied access to children out of spite or malice the theory being as I say that men in India have got things pretty tough aside from the fact that marital rape is still legal of course in Mm. India and Anil Kumar is an outspoken admirer of Paul Elam uh, he's he's quoted them in a number of articles and interviews. Um, mm. There's a Vice documentary actually about the, the the rise of the kind of Indian men's rights movement that you can see online. And during the interview, he discusses you know how influential the A Voice for Men site was in his work. So wow. in April 2014, the Save Indian Family Foundation encouraged voters to support the Samajwadi Party or alternatively vote none of the above because the Samajwadi party had stated that it opposed the alleged misuse of gender bias laws. Gender bias laws were supposedly designed to flatten legal treatment in issues such as culpability for spouse suicide. So, you know, men felt they had a pretty raw deal in certain legal issues in India and the gender bias laws were amplifying that. And so this party, the Samajwadi party, were campaigning against that. However, 
they conspicuously didn't feature a real corrective measure against domestic violence and sexual assault. Now, Fulan stood for election in Uttar mm-hmm. Pradesh as a member of the Samajwadi Party, whose government at the time had withdrawn all the case against her member when she was released mm-hmm. from prison. That was them that did it, and she stood for them. What they went on to represent to some is pretty objectionable. Um, she'd actually won the election and served as an MP uh, and she was when she was assassinated by three gunmen outside their home, shot nine times. Yeah. By the way, with that assassination, unsurprisingly, a lot of skullduggery there. Uh, the gun or guns went missing, I believe, uh, supposedly, uh, courtesy of a party member and some accomplices, uh, all of which is kind of tying back to this men's rights movement and uh, also her historic uh, status as a figure of uh, distaste mm-hmm. in many parts of Indian society. Mm-hmm. So there's another stuff you should know episode there. That was fantastic. I <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, but I really, I really was an interesting, an interesting cat person. I didn't, didn't know anything about her before. So two fantastic women. Well, three if you count Vicky. Thanks. You <laughs> <laughs> pat in the head for a guy. I'm going to rename myself Paula Elamif. It's <laughs> <laughs> very clever. Somebody else is very clever. Is Mark. Yeah. Somewhere, wherever he is, Barbados, Vienna. Mark will be back Barbados next week. Barbados or Vienna, exactly. Yeah. Mark will be back next week. Mm-hmm. And he's got something up his sleeve. He, he wouldn't tattoo. But he has got his number of tattoos. That's mm-hmm. also very clever. Um <laughs> But uh, he's got something up his sleeve. He wouldn't let on what it was, but you the listener will get to enjoy it. I oh, will be away on tour. What will it be? Yeah. So uh, when the cat's away. Mm-hmm. The Mark, the Mark will play, will play yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, doke. That was great. <sighs> and yep. let's see what that boy produces next week. Okay, cheers. cheers.